0: Welcome. If uh, you are new with us, especially if you're new, we want to welcome you and uh, let you know we are working our way through the Gospel of John here at Calvary on Sunday morning. So why doesn't everyone turn to John chapter 17? We are studying chapter 17 and uh, we're calling this the real Lord's Prayer. I like the one that we learned in Matthew 6 verses 9 to 13. That was the disciples prayer uh, jesus could never have prayed that prayer uh, but here he's praying to his father and we are kind of eavesdropping it's an incredible prayer and it's divided into the three main parts jesus prays for himself jesus prays for his disciples and then jesus prays for all believers now we are currently in the second main part of this prayer jesus prays for his disciples And that covers verses 6 through 19. Now, let me say one more time. Uh, At this point, Jesus is less than 12 hours from the cross. Probably more like 9, because I think it's probably around midnight, and he was crucified at 9 a.m. So he's only got a few hours left before the cross. And listen, when someone is near death, they don't want to talk about frivolous things like sports or the weather. Okay? They want to talk to the people on earth they love the most, family and dear friends, about things in life that matter most. Now, Jesus did that with his disciples in chapters 13 through 16. But now he prays for them to his father in chapter 17. And here in these verses, Jesus is praying for his disciples, listen, from a heart of deep love and concern for their welfare, that's true, but also for the work he was turning over to them, for them to carry out, for them to continue on with. That would be the work of the kingdom, primarily the work of saving souls. Jesus said in Luke 19.10, For this reason I have come, to seek and to save those who are lost. And they would be picking up, and we all as Christians are picking up where Jesus left off. So this section of scripture contains what he was most concerned about Uh, for them on the night before his crucifixion. We have been working our way uh, through it slowly. There's so much here. Again, guys, this was what was on the Lord Jesus Christ's heart before he went to the cross. These are all the most important things he wanted to communicate to, to them, chapters 13 through 16. And now he brings to his Father in prayer for them, chapter 17. So we've already entered into part of this. We saw verses 9 and 10 last time. Let's pick it up in verse 11. Where Jesus said, and he's he's praying to his father, Now, I I am no longer in the world. And by that he simply means his public ministry to the world was done. His public ministry to the world was done. His disciples would be picking up the mantle and going into the world to preach the good news in his absence. So, I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, his true disciples. And I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me that they may, may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept uh, I have kept and none of them is lost except the son of perdition speaking of Judas Iscariot a counterfeit disciple None of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you and these things I speak in the world that they may know, excuse me, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So guys, in verses 11 through 13, Jesus is praying for his true disciples. And he prays for them that the father would grant them three requests. Here they are. First of all, that they would be kept by the father verse 11 secondly that they would have unity with one another also verse 11 and that they would have jesus joy fulfilled in them verse 13 now verse 12 in verse 12 the lord mentions how that everyone the father had given him speaking of his true disciples he kept and, quoting the Lord, lost none of them except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, I realize that really that statement flows along with verses 11 through 13, um, but I would like to handle it separately. It's, uh, after we cover uh, these three requests, uh, handle verse 12 It's kind of a standalone uh, verse because there's stuff in there that we need to bring out. But um, we want to focus, though, uh, for the next few weeks on these three statements. These are this, these three requests. These are very important things to Jesus for his disciples, all right? And the first one is that they would be kept by the Father. Let me read verse 11 again. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, my disciples. And I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me let me stop there when it comes to being kept by god as his people there is both a positional application that's eternal security and then a practical application which is victory over the devil in terms of spiritual warfare something he mentions directly in verse 15 all right i don't pray that you take them out of the world but i pray you you keep them from the evil one the devil Uh, So we will look at that, but this morning I want to focus on just the first part of this request that Father, you would keep them, and the idea is keep them safe and on their way to heaven, that they would never be lost, is the idea. And of course, again, the idea is eternal security. Guys, let me say this you will be kept, or actually, if you're a Christian, you are being kept as a believer because you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, and because your Savior is in, is in heaven right now, interceding for you on your behalf to the Father. Now, we've already covered that second one. We looked at Hebrews 7.25, how Jesus ever lives to make intercession for his people, and right now he is interceding uh, in heaven for us to the Father. Every time Satan tries to condemn us because we blow it, Jesus steps up as our advocate to the throne of the Father and says, Father, don't even listen to that. Uh, I've already paid for those sins. They're under my blood. And the Father says to the devil, who is our accuser, case dismissed, take a hike. Well, I don't know if he says take a hike, but case dismissed, okay? Get out of here, okay? Uh, so we've looked at Jesus interceding for us. But I would like to focus uh, for the rest of our time this morning, because I think it's very important, on the idea that once you receive Christ as your Savior, you... And we were sealed by the Holy Spirit. Now for that I'd like you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And I want to just read first of all verse 13. We'll read verse 14 in a minute. But Ephesians 1 verse 13. Where Paul said in him in Christ... You also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Paul is telling us that as soon as a person believes the gospel and receives Christ as their Savior, at that very instant they are sealed with the Holy Spirit. By saying that, Paul is drawing on, um, he's drawing this analogy from a practice that was very common in his day, the idea of things being sealed. Okay? Uh, not common for us because we don't live in that culture 2,000 years ago. But uh, Paul was drawing from something that was very common, common knowledge to the folks he was writing to there in Ephesus. And if we're going to understand what it means to be sealed with the Holy Spirit. I think we first need to understand come to understand what a seal was used for and what it represented. So bear with me, some of you have heard me teach on this before, but very important to the whole concept of um, our eternal security in Christ. In those days, not too many people could read or write. So a man would have a signet ring made, uh, having some kind of a design, uh, we would think of sometimes as a family crest, uh, which was carved into that ring. And that would become, uh, that would be used to represent his signature. And uh, the, the ring would then be, uh, when, when uh, a merchant or when a person wanted to sign an important document or something else, uh, they would take the ring and they would press it into wax or some other soft substance that would eventually harden and act as his seal. Now, these seals had a number of different purposes, but I want to give you the two that were most common. That's because they really get into what we're talking about this morning. First of all, um, a seal spoke of ownership, of ownership, Uh, and this would have been very familiar to Paul's readers, especially in Ephesus, because often merchants from Ephesus would uh, sail across the Aegean Sea to Greece or some other place where they would buy merchandise, and they would pay for it and then they would take their signet ring and they would impress it in this soft wax or some other substance where it would harden and their seal was was a uh, was visible all right then the merchandise was taken down and loaded on a ship and the shipper would bring it to the port of ephesus now the the merchant who had bought the merchandise knew about when the ship was coming in and so he'd be down there waiting for this ship that contained his merchandise and when the ship docked and uh, he would go on board, he would show the, the captain, who was the shipper, he would show the captain his signet ring, and the captain would match it up to the seal on the various pieces of merchandise he had bought. And it was his way of proving that he had bought and paid for that merchandise, and it belonged to him. Again, the seal made from the buyer's ring spoke of ownership. Guys, when you agreed to become the property of God, and that's what you did when you became a Christian, you may not have thought of it that way, but when you agreed to become the property of God and salvation by receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God sealed you with the Holy Spirit, declaring his ownership of you. In other words, God bought and paid for you and me through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, which means we now belong to him. Paul made this very clear In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 to 20, when he said, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You don't belong to yourself anymore. For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which now belong to him. In other words, once, and again, Paul is drawing on something very common to them. Once a merchant went down to a marketplace and bought some, some merchandise, paid the money, and, and put his seal on this merchandise, it belonged to him. It was a done deal. The tra- it was a done transaction, right? Uh, you know, the, 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 the seller at one point couldn't say, well, no, I changed my mind. That property no longer belonged to the seller. It now belonged to the merchant who purchased it and paid for it. Now, Paul knew this. And that's why he is incorporating this imagery uh, into his, uh, his idea of, of salvation being permanent. Um, it's a finished transaction, a done deal. Uh, one author put it well. He said, and I quote, When the Holy Spirit seals believers, he marks them as God's divine possessions who from that moment on entirely and eternally belong to him. The Spirit seal declares the transaction of salvation as divinely, and official, divinely official and final. End quote. So ownership was the first thing that came to a person's mind when they would uh, talk about a seal or a see a seal on some merchandise. The second thing that a seal spoke of, and these are the two main ones. There's some obscure things. These are the two main things that a a seal represented. Ownership and then secondly, security. Now, we are in Passion Week, uh, a title we have given this week that contains both Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. And so this week is a holy week for Christians. And hopefully you'll spend some time meditating on the Lord, reading the scriptures that uh, that uh, talk about his uh, death on the cross and his, his resurrection and so on. But after they crucified Jesus on the cross, they took him down and laid him in Joseph's tomb. Of course, we all know the story. Well, let me read to you, out of, in fact, you should turn to it, Matthew 27. Why don't we just turn to it read it together? Matthew 27, let's pick it up in verse 62. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver... Can you imagine calling the Lord Jesus Christ a deceiver? You have to be pretty deceived to see Jesus as a deceiver. We remember how that when he was alive, that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate, who at this time had a belly full of these guys, said to them, Look, you have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Guys, this seal, or that seal, contained the full weight of the Roman government behind it. It had the full weight of the Roman government behind it. No one but Caesar could legally break that seal. And anybody who broke the seal, who wasn't authorized by Caesar to do so, they did so under the pain of death. It was a capital offense to break a seal that the Roman government, in Caesar's name, had sealed something with, like this tomb. So the second thing a seal represents was security. Security. Since God has sealed you in Christ with the Holy Spirit the moment you put your trust in Jesus, you are absolutely secure. And you are secure because to break that seal would take somebody greater than God. Just like if there was anyone greater than Caesar, they could break the seal. But there was no one greater than Caesar. And so when it comes to Paul talking about how God sealed us with the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation, he has in his mind, he knows full well that God sealed us. And the only way for us to become unsealed, lost, was if somebody greater than God broke that seal. And of course, there's no one greater than God. And so Paul knew farewell. That's what he was communicating, that because God sealed us, We are absolutely secure. We have nothing to worry about. Our eternity, our salvation is absolutely and eternally secure. Now, I realize that every time I teach on something like this, there is a sweet little lamb of God who is letting the devil beat them up all the time and got them living under the law. And if they don't measure up, constantly condemning them. And so you have people that this is kind of how they think. And I know that some right now would probably be thinking, yes, Jesus, you know, God sealed me, but I can still blow it. I, I can still blow it and lose my salvation. Let me ask you this. Are you greater than God? Are you greater than God? Because he sealed you. And unless he's going to unseal you, which the Bible says is never going to happen, then you can't unseal yourself. Hold on to that thought. We'll get to it more in a moment. In fact, here we are. We're going to get to it right now. Ah, bear with me. I was up early today. Okay. Let me try to um, illustrate this using Noah and his family inside the ark because Noah and his family in the ark were a type of the believer in Christ. Now hear me out. and, and, and as I get into this, let me just say this. Some people seem to have a theology of salvation. That's as though Noah was told by God to build the ark, put all the animals in the ark, and then put pegs on the outside of the ark for him and his family to grab onto. And after the flood was over, if they were still hanging on, they made it. They made it. Or In other words, if I can just hang on to my salvation long enough, Until I die or Jesus comes in the rapture, I've made it. I've got to do it though. I've got to hang on tight. But as you read the story in Genesis, when the ark was finished, God said to Noah and his family, what? Come into the ark. Not go. It was not a command. It was an invitation. I mean, if I'm going to invite somebody into my house, I open the door and say, come inside. That's my house, right? When God was inviting people to be saved, and the ark represented that, it was a very a beautiful type of what we're talking about. God said to Noah and his family, now come into the ark. Check it out in Genesis. Come into the ark. It was an invitation. And by the way, God was in the ark. That's why he invited them to come in. If that ark would have gone under, it would have sunk with God in it. And come on, let's get serious, right? So I've, I've seen a kid's program years ago where they were, you know, it, they had a, a kid's cartoon about Noah in the ark. And uh, they're in the ark, and the flood's going on outside the ark, and suddenly the ark begins to spout leaks and so kids are running around putting their fingers in the leaks. I said, man, you just destroyed a perfect, beautiful illustration of Christ and the believer in Christ. Jesus Christ doesn't leak. When you're sealed in Christ, you never have to worry that Jesus is going to leak and go under with you in him. Amen. That's ridiculous, right? Now, now, here's the thing. Well, let me say this. So God invited him to come in. He was in the ark. And then it says in Genesis that God shut the door on Noah and his family, sealing them inside the ark just as God sealed you in Christ with the Holy Spirit at the moment you entered Christ in salvation. Here's the question. Could Noah have gotten out of that ark even if he had wanted to? I mean, who sealed him in the ark? God did. If Noah had closed the door, maybe he could have gotten out. I don't know. But the scripture makes it clear that God shut the door, sealing Noah and his family in the ark. And again, the question is, could Noah have gotten out of the ark even if he had wanted to? I don't think so, but guess what? Why would he ever have wanted to? Noah knew that inside the ark was safety and life. Outside the ark was judgment and death. Why in the world would he want to get out of the ark? And by the way, there are some Christians that when you talk about eternal security, well, I kind of feel trapped by that. Trapped? I, get, I, I guarantee you Noah didn't feel trapped in the ark as God sealed him in. He felt secure and safe. And listen to me very carefully. No doubt during the flood, as the ark was tossed to and fro, Noah fell down many times over the course of that year. I'm convinced Noah fell down many times in the ark, but he never fell out of the ark and perished. Just like you and I, once we're sealed in Christ, we're going to fall down in Christ many times. We're not perfect. In fact, John says in 1 John chapter 1, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us, but if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We are in Christ, we are saved, but we are not glorified yet. We're still going to blow it. So we're going to fall down many times in Christ, but we're never going to fall out of Christ and perish. And there are many scriptures I could give to you on this subject. Let me give you one. Jude, verse 24. Erechia. Now to him, who is able to keep you. Now to him, who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you faultless before his presence, before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. You read that and go. Now to him who is able to keep me from what? From stumbling. Does that mean I'm never going to sin as a Christian? We just said that's ridiculous. Okay. We say there's some Christians that teach Christian perfectionism. Once you're saved, you never sin again. I would love to be a fly on the ceiling of their car when they're driving down the expressway on a crowded day. I'm guaranteeing you they're sinning. No, because of the context and how Jude goes on to say and present you faultless someday before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, what he's got in mind is now unto him who was able to keep you from stumbling falling out of christ and perishing he's keeping you very important point because i don't believe you can be a victorious christian if you worry every day of your life you can lose your salvation how in the world can you be a victorious christian if every day of your life you're just fighting to stay saved working off some big list if you don't measure up to every day uh There are churches, my pastor used to say, he grew up in a church, Pastor Chuck Smith, where every Sunday they had to get saved all over again. (laughs) Because throughout the week, yeah, young guys, we're were blowing it. And I had to quick get into church Sunday to get saved all over again. Now he eventually came to realize that was ridiculous. It wasn't biblical. If you don't nail this down, and this is why Paul said in Ephesians 6, Put on, among other things, the helmet of salvation. Why? Well, a soldier's helmet protected his head from taking a, a, um, a blow to his head that could kill him. That was a vital area. But spiritually, Paul is saying, put on the helmet of salvation. What does that mean? In Thessalonians, he calls it the, help of the, home, the, um, the hope of the helmet of salvation. What does that mean? It means that Satan has a broadsword; It's a two-edged sword. One edge is doubt. The other edge is... Uh, is um, one edge is doubt. One is discouragement. And he's always trying to hit you upside your head, the area of your thinking, to get you to doubt whether you're really saved. Look, I'm convinced the devil knows once you're saved, you're always saved. He's lost you but so that you don't affect anybody else for Christ or bring them to Christ. If he can get you to think your salvation is, eter- is, is not eternal, if he can get you to doubt your salvation, you're never going to live like a victorious Christian. So really, he's kind of served his purposes. If he can't get you to actually be lost, if he can convince you that you're lost and not living a constant you know, life in the Spirit, eternal security, then you'll never live like a victorious Christian. That's why this subject is so important. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 is, in my mind, one of the greatest chapters in all the New Testament in proving the absolute eternal security of the believer in Christ. The chapter starts with no condemnation and it ends with no condemnation. Separation. Let's just read verses 38 and 9. And as you read this with me, try to imagine Paul, a theologian, one of the greatest teachers that the church has ever seen. He's trying to communicate something with us, and he's grasping for every possible scenario that somebody might say, yes, but I can lose my salvation because of this. He starts the chapter with no condemnation. If you're in Christ, you'll never go to hell is the idea. Well, but I'll go to hell if I'm separated from Christ, and what if I do something to separate myself from Jesus? Then he ends with that. No condemnation, no separation. So he's trying to gather everything he can think of. As somebody might bring up to say, but I can lose my salvation if... be separated from Christ if I do this. Let's read it together. You'll see what I mean. Verse 38. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is where? In Christ Jesus. He's not... Saying God loves the world. He said, Jesus said that in John 3, right? Verse 16. But here Paul is talking specifically about believers, those who are in Christ. And he said, look, all these things, and then he, he verse 39, uh, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate you, separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's talking about salvation now. In our eternal security. Here's the thing. Are you a created thing here this morning? I would hope so. If you say no, I'm ushers. <laughs> S- stand up here with me. Look, height nor depth nor any other created thing is going to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We're all created things, which means not even you can separate yourself from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. You're sealed in him with the Holy Spirit, like Noah and his family were sealed in the ark. So the real question is, are you in Christ this morning? That's the real question. Are you in Christ this morning? If you are, then you are secured there safely forever forever. And if not, if you're outside the safety and protection of Christ, the wrath of God abides on you, Jesus said in John 3.36. You're on your way to hell. The good news is you don't have to go to hell because if you want to escape the judgment of God coming upon this world, the only way to do it is to accept his invitation to come to Jesus, to come to Christ, And take refuge in him by faith. Now when you do that, you will be placed safe and secure in Christ, sealed with the Holy Spirit, and guaranteed that your voyage on earth, your physical life, is going to end in heaven someday with the Father taking possession of you. Remember your seal? Remember the the shipper illustration? The merchant goes and pays for merchandise seals it with his ring it's brought over to the port of his city he goes down there and he takes possession of it showing the signet ring to the to the captain of the ship right when you accept Christ you are sealed with the Holy Spirit that guarantees that this journey is going to end in heaven with the father claiming you as his own you belong to him he bought and paid for you And as a proof of his ownership and your security, he sealed you and me with the Holy Spirit. Now listen to me, guys. Of course, when we're raptured, whenever that might be, we're going to receive our new glorified body. And uh, our redemption will be complete. What do you mean? I thought I was redeemed already. Partly. Your redeemed body. Excuse me, your redeemed body. Uh, your soul is redeemed; you've received a spirit, um, and so on. But our physical bodies are not redeemed yet; they're still physical. And Paul said in Romans eight, uh, you know, we're groaning for that day when we're going to our spirit and, uh, and uh, soul are going to be released from this body to be, you know, this body is going to become glorified, which happens at the rapture, right? And once we receive our glorified body, then our redemption will be complete. Now, and, and, and of course, uh, his promise to us, which many different scriptures, John 10, uh, 28 is one, how he's promised us that we will never perish. We'll get to that in a second. Okay. Uh, so eventually when we stand in his presence and uh, in our glorified bodies, uh, it will be the total fulfillment of his promise that once you give your heart to my son, I, I have sealed you and I will someday claim you and you'll have a new body. You'll live with me and my kingdom forever. Until that time, guys, God has given to us his Holy Spirit as a guarantee, Paul said here in Ephesians 1.14, as a guarantee of our heavenly inheritance until we experience the full redemption of those he has bought and paid for with the blood of his son. Look at Ephesians 1, verse 14. He just got done saying we were sealed with the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation, verse 14, who the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. The Greek word there for guarantee is the word arrow and it was uh, could be translated um, down payment or engagement ring what does that mean well what paul is saying is that when you uh will say you're out looking to buy a house and you've looked at dozens of houses and you finally find one that is perfect what do you do you make an offer the offer is accepted what do you do to show the seller you're in earnest it used to be called earnest money that you were in earnest you're fooling around you're playing games i want that house you give a down payment And that's the guarantee that you're serious and you're going to come back with the rest of the money, get the loan from the bank and take full possession of that property, right? Also, if a guy, you know, finds a gal that he just thinks is the most incredible woman he has ever dated and thinks that she's the the girl I want to spend the rest of my life with, he proposes to her and she accepts, what does he do? He gives her an engagement ring. What is he saying? He's saying, honey, I'm serious about this commitment commitment to you. I'm serious about us getting married. I'm not playing games here. And and this engagement ring is my way of saying, look, this is my promise that I'm going to marry you someday and together we're going to live as one. That's exactly what God is saying. And Paul knew. You knew the imagery. That's exactly what Paul was stressing with regard to getting saved and receiving the Holy Spirit He is saying that the Holy Spirit is really our engagement ring. It's our down payment from God. That he's in earnest. He made us a promise. Jesus said it in John 14, right? I'm going to prepare a place for you. uh, And if I prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back someday and take you to myself to be where I am. That where I am, you shall always be, right? John 14, 1 to 3. And to seal the deal that he was coming back, What did he say in the rest of the chapter? I'm not going to leave you alone like orphans. I'm going to give you another helper, the Holy Spirit who is going to abide with you forever. He will be with you until I can come back and take full possession of my bride. This is all under the heading of Jesus' prayer, Father, please keep them. Keep them. Let's look briefly at John 10 and we'll close. We could spend weeks and weeks on this. And if you know me, you know I am prone to do that sometimes. <laughs> but really, for our intents and purposes in, in, in our study in John, I just want to bring this out. You can, you know, you can come up afterwards. I can direct you to other studies. We did this, looked at this subject in detail. We're still looking at how the Father keeps us eternally once we're saved that will never perish right now one of the classic passages on that very idea is john 10. let me just read verse 27 and 8 beginning part of verse 28 where jesus said my sheep hear my voice and i know them and they follow me and i give them eternal life let me stop there as i said when we studied john chapter 10 jesus ties eternal life to a person making him their shepherd, which is tantamount to saying they believe in him. Now the question is, well then, uh, all right, if being saved means Jesus is my shepherd, how do I know if I've made Jesus my shepherd? Well, that's not really a hard question to answer. Very simply, a shepherd is one who leads sheep, and the sheep follow their shepherd. He made that very clear in John 10, that when sheep belong to a shepherd, they won't follow any other shepherd. All the shepherds put their sheep into these communal sheepfolds at night during the the winter time. In the morning, there is a gatekeeper and he knows the shepherds. He opens the gate to each of the shepherds. They call their sheep by name and and only his sheep follow him out. And Jesus used that illustration to, to sum up what he was talking about here in John 10. My sheep hear my voice i know them and they follow me the question is if you want to know if you're one of jesus sheep are you following him are you following paul said to a young pastor named titus many profess to know god but in works they deny him i've met many people over the years who profess to be christians but jesus said you'll know them by their what professions by their fruit right you'll know them by their fruit In other words, those who are really born again of the Spirit are those whose lives are changing. Now listen, I'm not trying to say that you follow Jesus perfectly, otherwise you're not one of his sheep. I don't. I want to, but I don't always. What I'm saying is, is the general pattern of your life, now that you've received him, is the general pattern to obey him, follow him. As he said in John chapter 12, Where I am, there my servant must be also. Look, now that I'm one of Jesus' sheep, how do I know that in part? Because I don't want to be where I used to be. People think, I I don't want to be a Christian. You can't have any fun. I like going to parties. I like going to uh, nightclubs or whatever they're doing, dance clubs. You can't have any fun. I'm having a ball. Because the things I used to want to do, I don't want to do anymore. And the things I really didn't want to do, go to church, read the Bible, pray with Christians, hang out with Christians. I love that. It's because I have a new nature, is the point. Peter said, when you receive Christ, the Holy Spirit moves in and you become partakers of God's divine nature. All things are new. Paul said that in Corinthians. "Old things pass away, everything becomes new. That's how you know. I don't want to follow the world anymore. I followed the world for 25 years before I became a Christian. Well, I didn't really follow as a baby, but, you know, you get the point, okay? So maybe, I don't know, 20 years, whatever. The point is, though, that I can look at my life and see there's a big difference. And like Paul, I want to know him deeper every day. So are you following Jesus this morning? Not perfectly, but is that the general pattern of your life? Because if you say no, read Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we go to church and serve you and even work miracles in your name? You say, I never knew you. Depart from me into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. You don't want to hear him say that to you. This is the day of salvation. This is the time you examine yourself honestly and sincerely between you and God alone. Don't, don't worry about what I think. I'm not the issue. Only worry about what Jesus thinks. Am I playing games? Am I, pl- am I serious? Have I really made a commitment? Or am I just playing games? Am I playing church? It's a lot of churchianity today. A lot of people playing church, thinking that they're right with God. And they're not. But again, math, uh, John 10, verses 27 and 8. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. And again, some dear Christians, some sweet little lamb, uh, is invariably going to say, Yes, Jesus gives us eternal life, but I have to be faithful or or else I lose it. Jesus anticipated that response, so he directly, after saying, I give them eternal life, said, and they shall never perish. Now look, I am not a Greek scholar. I know a little Greek, went to college and learned some Greek. I got some good Greek materials at home. From what I have learned about the Greek language, you can put a sentence in one of three voices, they call it, active, uh, middle, or passive voice. What does that mean? In the active voice, the, the subject is doing the action. I threw the ball to so-and-so. If a sentence was put in the passive voice, the the action is being done to me. The ball was thrown to me. If you put something in the middle voice, it's reflexive. I'm doing the action to myself. I threw the ball to myself is the idea. When Jesus said here in verse 28, um, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish, he put that statement in the middle voice. Here's how it should be translated. And they will never do anything to cause themselves to perish, is the idea. And then he further adds, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Guys, our faithfulness to hold on to Jesus isn't the issue. A lot of churches want to make it the issue. The issue is his faithfulness to hold on to us. Wasn't that what we saw in John 10? Um, You know, um, he goes on to say in verse uh, 29 and 30, you know, that I have you in my hand, the Father has you in his hand, and you're never going to be lost because we have you tightly in our hand. I and the Father are one. Guys, eternal life is given at the moment a person believes in and receives Jesus Christ as their Savior Check out John 1, verse 12. And starting from that point and onward, as Jesus himself taught us here, from that point, the point you accept Christ, on into eternity, you will never perish. And that's because God has you in his hand. Jesus has you tightly in his hand. So does the Father. And therefore, the imagery is you're eternally secure. You think you're in good hands with all state? Hey, you're in great hands with the Father and the Son who are holding tightly onto you. Now, again, some Christians would respond at this point and have responded, but I still think I can slip through his fingers and be lost if I'm not faithful to live a holy life or something. Well, you read them, John 10, the Father and the Son have you tightly in their hands Oh, you know, you're, you're secure. Oh, but, you know, I can maybe slip through one of his fingers if I don't live a holy life and so on, right? Donald Gray Barnhouse was a brilliant pastor and commentator. Um, I remember him saying famously to someone who said that very thing, he said to them, you can't slip through his fingers because you are one of his fingers. You are a member of his body, end quote. Let me read to you John 10:28. As we, I know our time is done. We got to just give you this, and we'll bring it to an end. Let me read you John 10:28 out of the Amplified. It's a little loud. I think you can handle it. But the Amplified Bible kind of emphasizes the Greek that you, in the Hebrew things that maybe don't come through. Obviously. So they try to kind of go with the extended uh, translation where they're kind of bringing in what these words are actually saying. Okay? John 10, 28. Jesus said, And I give them eternal life, and they shall never lose it or perish throughout the ages to all eternity. They shall never by any means be destroyed, and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. Now, one Greek scholar uh, said this about this passage. He said the Greek, and don't expect to understand this. I don't. I'm going to read it to you and I'll explain why I'm going to read it to you. He said the Greek is an emphatic double negative with the second aorist middle subjunctive of Apolumi. Apolumi is the Greek verb to destroy. They shall never be destroyed. And I read that because the, the Greek scholar goes on to say there is no other... Way, something could be communicated this is the strongest way possible for you to put something in the greek language that will never ever happen that we will never perish once we are in christ never going to happen ever one pastor said this with regard to that idea he said backslide they may perish they won't chastise you he may disown you he won't guys eternal life by its very definition has to mean uninterrupted life for eternity once it's given if i said to you what if jesus said you come to me believe in me i'll give you a life for a decade how long would that be 10 years what if he said you come to me and i'll give you a life for a century 100 years right Well, why are we confused when he says, come to me and I'll give you life for eternity? Oh, but I have to work hard or else I'm going to lose it. He didn't say that. By its very definition, eternal life starts at the moment of you accepting Christ and goes on forever. Goes on forever, right? And that was the difference between, and let me just say this. That is God's promise to us based on his faithfulness, not ours. That was the difference between the old covenant under Moses and the new covenant under Christ, which is a covenant built on better promises, we are told in Hebrews. The old covenant that God made, in the Bible there are two kinds of covenants. There are bilateral covenants and unilateral covenants. What's a bilateral covenant? It's a two-party contract buy two, two-party contract. If I'm going to hire you to do some work for me, and we settle on a set price for this work, if you do the work to my satisfaction, you keep your end of the covenant up, uh, then I will give to you the money I owe you. If you don't do the work the way you have promised me, uh, and all, then I'm then the contract is null and void. You didn't keep your end of the bargain, therefore I'm not obligated to give you the money I promised you, right? That's how it works. God made with Israel a bilateral covenant. It was a two-party contract between God and the nation of Israel. Now, he brought them out of Egypt, stood by the base of Mount Sinai, and said, Look, I want to be your God. And If I'm your God, I'm going to bless you beyond any nation on the face of the earth. But you have, there are terms of the covenant you have to fulfill. But I want, you to be, I want you to be my people, and if you want to enter into this covenant with me, uh, I want to be your God. And would the people say, Oh, yeah, absolutely. We want to be your people. We like that idea of having all kinds of neat stuff given to us by you. Yes, we want to be your people. Okay, Moses, come up top of the mountain. I'll give the nation the terms of the covenant. Think of the Ten Commandments, right? So Moses up there 40 days, 40 nights. Here he's coming down now with these two tablets, right? Uh, written up the Ten Commandments with the finger of God. The terms of the covenant. And he's coming down from the mountain. What does he see? All the people in the valley are worshiping a golden calf acting lewdly, revelry. Moses hadn't even gotten down from the mountain. They had broken the first and greatest commandment. Yell no, have, shall have no other gods before me? But that was God's way of showing us that if we, if he allowed us to be part of this idea of salvation, we wouldn't last two minutes because we're not faithful. We're, we're, we're prone to blow at it. We, we, we make God promises that we can't keep, right? And God knows that. And he knows that we're, we're prone to failure. Um, so it doesn't matter how faithful God is. If I'm allowed to be in the equation of salvation in any way, shape, or form, I'm doomed to spend eternity in hell. I was telling First Service when we first moved into our community, uh, there was a restaurant... Somebody first service asked me, was it down the hatch? I didn't mention it because, I mean, who knows the restaurant down the hatch? But, yes, it was down the hatch. And it was not far from our house. And it had a nautical theme. Down the hatch, okay, had a nautical theme. And you walk up to the front door, and they had outside this gigantic anchor. I'm not talking about a little fishing boat anchor. I'm talking about a ship anchor, big anchor. And connected to it was a massive chain. I'm telling you, these links had to be about four foot long and at least a half an inch in diameter. Imagine God's promises for salvation are like that anchor and those links. Massive. No way they could ever be broken, right? Now imagine we take one of the links out and insert Another link between the massive links made up of a single strand of our hair. Now, How, how durable is that anchor and chain now? How, how much can you depend on it now, right? Because the chain is only as strong as its weakest link. That, that's the whole point I'm trying to drive home. Look. It doesn't matter how strong or faithful God is in keeping his promise to us to give his eternal life. If we have a part to play in securing our salvation in any way, guess what? We are lost. I'm not worried about God's faithfulness in keeping his promise. I'm worried about my faithfulness because I'm not very faithful. I'm prone to failure, right? And that's why the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 6, verse 19, this hope, the hope of eternal life, is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. Why? Because it's God's faithfulness to hold on to us. He said both sure and steadfast. God's promises are sure and steadfast. And they're sure because we're not involved in these things, right? Guys, the whole idea of the New Covenant was to take the human link, quote unquote, out of the chain and make salvation entirely dependent upon God's power and faithfulness. Turn back to Romans 8. And we'll look at this in close. But this time I want you to look at verses 29 and 30. Romans 8, 29 and 30. Paul said, For whom he knew, whom God knew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. Theologians call this the golden chain of Romans 8. What does that mean? Well, every link in this chain, quote unquote, is uh, it relates to God and His faithfulness to keep His promises to us. And the ideas, when we get saved, He promises to bring us all the way, all the way to glory. Okay, all the way to glory. Every link talks about God's faithfulness. If you notice, we are not in anything. He foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified, he, 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 he. Not you, not me, in any of it. I mean, we are nowhere in the chain. Our faithfulness isn't a link found anywhere. Guys, our salvation is a promise that is unilateral and unconditional. I talked to you about bilateral covenants real quickly. A unilateral covenant was when God... God promised to give us something and we do nothing in return to get it. I was telling First Service, it'd be like, you know, your Uncle Harry died, and they, the attorney said, You need to come over for the reading of the will because you're in the will. And I go over there, and Uncle Harry said, Upon my death, I'm going to give my nephew Phil uh, my entire Elvis album collection. He doesn't say if Phil does this, this, or that, just it's a unilateral unconditional promise every promise in the bible with regard to salvation is unilateral it's unconditional we have no part to play in receiving salvation we just believe it by faith reach out and accept what god is giving us as a free gift guys it's a promise that deals with the faithfulness of god and doesn't include our faithfulness to do anything like when I was a Roman Catholic. You know, we were taught we got to keep commandments and go to church, light candles, keep sacraments, pray the rosary. If we do all these things, we'll earn salvation. It wasn't until I read the Bible I realized that was not true. Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast the confidence of our hope. And someday we're going to be taken to heaven. Without wavering, hold fast to this confidence. Without wavering. Don't let the devil get in there. Try to tell you that you can lose your salvation if you don't measure up. And then he ends with this. For he who promised is faithful. It's God was holding on to us. He made a promise. He's faithful in keeping that promise. God's promises with, with regard to salvation depend on the faithfulness of one person and that's god almighty which again means they are all unilateral unconditional promises if you've received christ and the issue is have you received christ if you've really received christ into your heart by faith you have been sealed with the holy spirit you are guaranteed a place in heaven someday oh but i blow it all the time welcome to humanity we all do But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Father is keeping the prayer request the Son made to him on the night before his crucifixion. Father, keep them. Keep them saved. Keep them secure in me that they would never, ever perish. The Father has answered that prayer, and we are kept by his power and strength for eternity. So next time we get together, next week is Resurrection Sunday. The week after, we will continue because, guys, he goes on to say, Father, keep them from the evil one. So there is a keeping that's practical with regard to spiritual warfare. That's a very important subject. Come on back. We'll look at that next time. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Your word is truth. We thank you for the great and precious promises you've given to us in your word, promises that... Once we receive Jesus Christ, we will never perish. We have passed from death to life, and that's a one-way door. Thank you, Lord. And Father, we pray that you give us grace to understand and to meditate on these truths because the devil wants to, to condemn us. The devil wants to point out our faults, our failures, our disobedience, our sins. Lord, give us grace not to sin, to walk with you in close fellowship, but if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins, but not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Thank you, Lord, that you made provision and you are keeping us firmly in your hands all the way to glory. We thank you. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.